The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been walking through uh, the book of, of Colossians. But Paul wrote this little letter, it's just four chapters, to this little church in Colossae. You see, the, the Colossians, just like us, they really struggle to believe that Jesus is enough. It seems like they began, beginning, they began believing that he was enough when Epaphras came and told them about Jesus. But over time, something started to go wrong. They began to lose sight of Jesus and Jesus alone and started mixing Jesus with other things, with other philosophies, with even uh, religious legalism. And I know legalism sounds like one of those big fancy words, but legalism is just any sort of thinking that law-following generates obedience and holiness. So legalism, any sort of thinking that law-following will generate obedience, and holiness. But Paul is totally clear that the only thing that can give us holiness and obedience is Jesus. No law-keeping of any sort can do it. Only Jesus. And so this church that Paul writes to, they've been, they're being tempted to go beyond Jesus. That Jesus got me in the door, now it's up to me to do these things to get beyond, to get better. And I think we're tempted with this almost on a daily basis. We're tempted to, in our lives to move beyond Jesus to gain approval, further approval by other things. We fall into this vicious cycle that, that our behavior will gain us more approval, greater approval before God. See, we have our own 21st century philosophies and moralism that we have to fight against. Now, are morals wrong? Of course not. Morals aren't wrong. But moralism is the thinking that by doing good, we can improve our standing before God. By obeying rules, we think that we can go places with God that Jesus just can't take us alone. That's the concept of moralism, of legalism. You see, the very same things that were distracting the Colossians 2,000 years ago, I believe are the same things that tend to distract us today. Listen, if the churches of Colossae and Galatia, if they were struggling with this just 30 years after Jesus was there and ascended, don't you think we're going to probably struggle with it 2,000 years later? I, I think so. And so the question that Paul is answering in this entire letter that he writes to the Colossians is this question of, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? Is he enough? Does Jesus and Jesus alone actually provide everything I need to be perfectly right with God forever and always? Does Jesus possess it? Does Jesus have what it takes to be right with God forever and always? Now, in our room this morning, we're probably out there, we probably say, well, yes, of course he is. If I were to ask us, if I were to take a poll, does Jesus have all it takes for us to be right with God forever and always? We would probably all say, yes, of course he does. But let me ask you, what about the times, dads, says this Father's Day, what about the times when we totally lose it? We totally lose it with our wife and our kids. Like, we totally lose it. Is, is Jesus enough in those moments? 
to keep us perfectly right with God forever and always? Or do we have to do something to get back something we lost in God? What about those times when we're nearly hit in a head-on collision on the highway and all of a sudden this string of profanities just flows from our mouth? What about those moments? Is Jesus enough even in those moments to keep us perfectly right forever and always with God? Or do we have to do something to gain something we just lost? See, we say, yes, Jesus is enough, but, but what about the time when we realize as a family it's been months since we've been to church? It's been months since we've come together with other believers. Is Jesus enough even in those moments? to keep us forever and always right with God, or do we need to do something to gain what has been lost? You see this? What about those moments when weeks pass? We haven't even cracked open our Bible. And this guilt comes in and this condemnation. So you're not even reading your Bible. Is Jesus enough even in those moments to keep us forever and always right with God? Or or, or are we only going to be right with God if we get back into reading? or coming to church, or cursing less. You see this? See, we all raise our hands and say, yes, Jesus is enough, but then we tend, maybe not always, but we tend to rely upon our behavior to actually stay right with God. Does that make sense? We would say with our mouths, yes, Jesus is enough, but then we rely upon our ability to live up to something, some standard, to really rest that we are, in fact, good enough. But the question of Colossians and the question for us, is Jesus alone enough? Is he alone enough? I mean, let's be honest. We tend to rely upon our own efforts a whole lot. Let's don't feel bad, all right? This is exactly what's happening with the Colossians. They were drifting from their reliance upon Jesus and Jesus alone for their everything, and they were drifting towards a reliance upon their own behavior, their own action. Much like the Galatians, the Colossians, they began by the Spirit, but they were trying to finish by their own efforts, by their flesh. So how do we, how do we trudge through this question of, is Jesus really enough? I mean, we we want to believe that, but how do we really get that in? How do we really soak that up? Well, um, the bracelets aren't as popular, but there's a a, a WDPD, right? What did Paul do, right? And so let's let's just kind of do what Paul did. What, What does Paul do? What Paul does, we saw it last week, he reminds us of what Jesus has done. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God has rescued us from this domain of darkness and has transferred us into a kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul starts off saying, look, is Jesus enough? We've got to talk about what he has done. He's rescued us. We've passed from death unto life. But Jesus doesn't just, I mean, Paul, excuse me, doesn't just stop there with the work of Jesus, what Jesus has done. What Paul goes on to do, and what we're going to look at this morning, is who is this Jesus? You see, if the question is, is Jesus enough? Then we've really got to wrestle with the question of who is Jesus? I could probably ask any of us in the room and say, what did Jesus do? And we'd probably get a lot of good answers. But if we were to really stop and think about who is Jesus. And that, that, that might take a little bit longer. 
Because we don't really wrestle with that. And so Paul is saying, hey, before you just blindly dive into really fully believing that Jesus is enough, let's take some time to just answer the question, who is he? Who is he? Not just what did he do, but actually who is he? Now, what he did is beyond imagination, but let's dive into who he is. What are Jesus' credentials? What credibility does he have to claim that he is, in fact, enough? Who is he that we should trust in him? Who is this Jesus? And so what Paul does after lining just two verses, saying what he's done, he's rescued us and transferred us, what Paul now does is he opens up, it's like he unveils, he, he removes a veil revealing to us who this Jesus is. A lot of times we think of Jesus as the carpenter's son who hung on the cross. And yes, he did, and he was. But who is he? Now, I know this might be kind of a silly word here, but I heard somebody else use it, and so I'll go with that. We're going to see, Paul makes some colossal statements in this letter to the Colossians. That's why it's kind of silly, colossal Colossians. He, he makes some colossal statements about Jesus. Some that are so huge that it's almost like, really? Come on, really? We're going to see through the rest of chapter 1 and even into chapter 2 some colossal statements that Paul talks about, that Paul reveals about who this Jesus is. So before we can answer the question and, and rest in the question of, is he enough? We've got to really wrestle with, who is he? Who is this Jesus? And so we pick up in verse 15, if you have your copy of God's Word in uh, Colossians chapter 1, it'll be on the screen as well. So Paul, he, he answers this question of who is Jesus. Verse 15 says, he is the image. You want to know who he is? You need to know who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So right off the bat, Paul makes this first of these colossal statements he says, this is really probably the most controversial statement that Paul makes. It's not really controversial to us today, but this, is this, this, this belief that Jesus is the image of God is what led to Jesus' crucifixion. If you remember when Jesus was on trial before the, uh, the religious group of the day, when Jesus said, I am you know, the, the Son of God, the, the, the priests, they, they tore their clothes and they cried, blasphemer. And that's what propelled the, the argument, the case for Jesus to be crucified. In fact, Paul, who's writing this letter back 30-some years prior, was the leader of this religious group to, to, who, who, who went from city to city chasing down people who believed that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, and he would chase them down to imprison them, even to kill them. And now Paul is sitting in prison writing to pagan you know, uh, Gentiles saying, Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. When he says this, he's saying that until now, God has been unseen. God is spirit. He's invisible. But now that Jesus has come, God is actually visible. Paul is saying that when you see Jesus, you're actually seeing God. And John, Jesus says this also in John 14, when Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, Paul nor Jesus is saying that Jesus is the Father, but they're saying, both of them, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is, in fact, God. Jesus is God 
with flesh on. He is God with us. Emmanuel. So this is a huge shift for Paul. Paul has gone from killing people who believe this to now sitting in prison believing because he believes it, and he's writing these letters to churches saying, you need to believe this. This is a huge shift for Paul. But Jesus, we have to understand, is not competition with God. He's not in competition with God. That's what the religious Jews believed, that Jesus was in competition with God. Jesus isn't against God. Jesus is God made visible. When you read about Jesus caring for the needy and caring for the poor, we're actually seeing the very heart of God. To see Jesus is to see God. Far too often we get this idea that the, the Holy Spirit is our comforter, right? We get this idea that Jesus is our Savior. But when we think of the Father, and it's appropriate on Father's Day, when we think of God the Father, we think of this hostile old man that yells at you when you walk in his grass. I mean, let's just, let's just face it. That's what we think when we think of God the Father. We think that he's, he's against us. He's hostile towards us. Well, in chapter 2, and Ricky's going to be preaching this in a couple of weeks, that in chapter 2... Verse 14, the entirety of that hostility was nailed to the tree. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, the hostility is over. We've passed from death unto life. We have to see that God the Father is not some angry old man. When we see Jesus and his love by hanging on the cross, we are seeing the very heart of the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. What's Paul saying about this? Well, this is another one of these colossal statements. He's the firstborn of all creation. Well, we know that Jesus always existed. Paul says it very clearly in a couple of verses. John says it over and over. Uh, so we, we believe at Life Journey that Jesus didn't start existence when he entered in the womb of Mary. We believe that he always existed. So what does this mean that he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, the word firstborn just simply has this idea of priority, preeminence. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the point. He's the, he's the reason for all of creation. He is preeminent over all of it. And he explained this in verse 16. So let's move on to verse 16. And you have this three-letter word that's really awesome, F-O-R. And when you're reading the Bible, this is you know, free, this is no extra charge on this one. When you're reading the Bible, we have four, F-O-R, that always helps you understand what just happened, what was just said. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, for, okay, now this next part's going to help us understand the previous part. For all things, look at this, for by him all things were created. For by him, who? Jesus, all things were created. We've got to let that sink in for a minute. Paul's next colossal statement about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who created all things. You say, but, but wait a second. But I thought that God was the one who created all things back in Genesis. Uh, bingo! Yes! Jesus is who? God. Jesus is God. Paul is saying that when you go back to Genesis 1 and you hear the voice of God saying, let there be, Paul is saying that was the very voice of God the Son. I've got to be honest with you. This kind of messes with me a little bit. Because I always grew up with this concept that it's God, like God the Father who's speaking creation into existence. But Paul is saying by him, by Jesus, all things have come into existence. It is by the very desire and will of Jesus 
that everything has been created. Now, this doesn't mean that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were not a part of creation. Of course they were. Jesus didn't create all that is as some sort of uh, rogue operation behind the backs of God the Father and, and God the Spirit. The entire Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the, the Son, were all involved in, the, in creation. But Paul is placing the chief source of creation at the very feet of Jesus himself. I mean, really think about this. Really think about this. The very first words to break through the silence of eternity past were the very words of Jesus. Think about that. At Jesus' very words, light broke through darkness. At Jesus' very words, waters separated. Dry land appeared. Plants started sprouting. Fish started swimming. Birds started flying. Animals started walking. People started breathing. At the very words of Jesus, the very words of Jesus, everything exists. So, when you realize that, think about this very same Jesus is the one who hung on a wooden cross. That very same Jesus is the one who created wood. Think about that. This very same Jesus was pierced by metal nails, spikes, and a metal spear. That's the very same Jesus who created metal with his words. The very same Jesus who bore the sin of man is the very same Jesus who formed from the clay man and breathed life into him. And Paul doesn't want us to be confused about this. Paul doesn't want this to be left up to interpretation. And so he continues, continuing. He says, for by him all things were created. And then he, he, he makes sure we understand what all things means. He says, in heaven, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. So it's not even just the things that we can see that Jesus has created. It's also the things that we cannot see he's created. Jesus is the one who's created even the unseen things as well. Uh, the, the very kingdom of heaven. Who created that? That's what Paul says. It was created by Jesus. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom... My kingdom is not of this realm. So Jesus was talking about his kingdom being of a totally different realm, a totally different world, the kingdom of heaven. Just a couple of verses ago in chapter, in verse 13, he said that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved son. Heaven itself, the kingdom of heaven is Jesus's. He created it. It was created by Jesus. Now, Paul just fires off some more of these colossal statements. Look at this. He says it was created by him, but then look at the bottom there. He says, all things were created through him. Through him. Paul is saying that everything we can see, all the powers, all the authorities, everything in the world, it was not just created by him, but it was created through him. It was created through him. This means that all the power and the energy needed to create everything that's created exists in Christ. Do you see this? Do, do we see this? In, the, in Jesus, the power dwells to create. Creation wasn't like subcontracted to Jesus and Jesus was just doing someone else's bidding. 
No, no. All of creation was created through Him. Through His power, through His might, we see what we see. And we even don't see what we don't see. Which is kind of crazy to think about. Now, we think that that's enough, but Paul just keeps throwing these colossal statements. He says it was all created by Jesus. It was all created through Jesus. Now look at this last one. He says, and it was all created for Him. For Jesus. Everything was by Him, through Him, but now he's saying it's for Him. Now, this makes it sound like Jesus was lonely and he needed somebody like, to hang out with. No, no, no. Jesus wasn't lonely and needed somebody to hang out with. In fact, Jesus created everything for the purpose of revealing himself to a creation that he could pour himself into. Jesus created us so that we could experience him. Creation is for Jesus to show the fullness of himself. Creation is for Jesus to unveil the full depths of his justice, of his love, of his forgiveness, of his mercy, and of course, of his grace. Creation is for Jesus to love. Creation is for Jesus to be recognized for who he fully is. Jesus didn't create creation because he was lonely. He created creation to give himself to his creation. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything visible, invisible, powers, rulers, authorities, all of it has been created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. So remember the question that we're trying to answer. Who is Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For he created, all things are created by him. Everything, visible, unvis- invisible, all of it. It's all created through him and for him. That, that should be enough, right? Okay, Paul, we get it. But no, he continues. He continues, go to verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's like as if Paul hasn't been clear enough, Paul just says it again. Jesus, he's before it all. He's he's created it all, and so as the creator of it all, he existed before creation existed. And he is far superior to everything he's created. Jesus, Paul is saying very clearly that Jesus is divine. He is God. He is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's nothing greater, nothing bigger, nothing before Jesus. But then this colossal statement of all things in him are held together. In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. All things hold together? Paul is saying that the reason that our universe has order is because Jesus holds it in order. He holds all things together. He's already said that Jesus started it all. He's created it all. But Jesus didn't stop just creating it. Jesus actually sustains it. He holds it. He continues it. He's talking about why our cosmos is not chaos. There's an order to life. There are systems, there are cycles, there are seasons, there's order. The reason that there's order is because Jesus is the one who holds it together. You see, he didn't just create life. Like I said, he sustains life. The more we know about science, about biology, about astronomy, all sorts of sciences, the more we know about it, the more we realize this uncanny order to things. Now, it's not just natural, a simple order like mathematics, you know, like addition, subtraction, multiplication tables. Those are awesome how those all work together in order. But Paul is saying that everything has been held, is being held together. Nearly every science has order to it. 
You know, one of the differences between a scientific theory and a scientific fact is that a scientific fact is provable by repeated, the the same uh, results being repeated over and over and over. Order. Order. The law of gravity, right? How's that work? You drop an apple, what happens? What happens? On whose head? Newton. That's right. I mean, that's just the way it works. You drop an apple, it falls on Newton's head. All right, there's order. Astronomy. It's all about order. Last Friday, two days ago, it was Friday the 13th, but it was also Friday the 13th with a what? Anybody know? Full moon. That's right. You guys are smart. With a full moon. You know that astronomers have already, are already telling us when the next Friday the 13th with a full moon is going to be? It's August uh, 13th, 2049. 2004. How do they do that? How can they do that? Because there's order. There's order. Because Jesus holds all things together. Where does this order come from? It comes from Jesus. Isn't that cool? I mean, Paul is saying that everything about creation has its center in Christ. He holds all things together, every cell in our body, everything on our planet, every orbit of the earth, every star in our sky, every solar system in our galaxy, every galaxy in the universe. Jesus holds all things together. Now surely that's enough, right? Okay, Paul, we'll get the picture. He's big. But he goes into verse 18. And, as if that's not enough, and he is the head of the body of his body, the church. And I wish we had more time to get into this than we do, but we don't. We've got to run through this a little bit too, faster than I'd like. But this next colossal statement is that Jesus is the head of the church. Well, what is the church? We come to it, right? Well, a lot of times we think that church is a place we go to, a building we go to, or an event we come to, to participate in. And I'm not saying that's totally incorrect, but the reality of it is that the church, Paul says, is the body of Christ. You see, when you start believing in Jesus, you are actually placed into the body of Christ. So you are the church. A, a building hasn't been placed into Christ. You are the church. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the head of the church. Well, what does that mean, the head of the church? And it's true for us to say that that means he is the authority over, he, he, is, he is the, uh, the, the, the ruler of the church. It's absolutely true. But there's one thing that we, we miss a lot of times when we talk about Jesus being the head of the church. Jesus being the head of the church means that Jesus, that the, that the church gets its identity from Jesus. Jesus as the source. Jesus as the head of the church. And so as we are in the church, as the, uh, as the body, in the body of Christ, Jesus becomes our identity. He becomes our source. Our source of what? Well, namely, of life. You see, the, Jesus is now the identity of us. He's the head of the church. The church has been given the very identity of its head. Remember, Paul says in Romans that uh, upon physical birth, Adam is our head. But once we become believers in Jesus, Jesus is our head. So we were under the identity of Adam, dead. Now we are under the identity of Christ, life, everlasting life. This is why baptism is so cool. In water baptism, we place someone under the water, we bring them back out of the water, symbolizing the picture of their identity with the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
We are given His identity, His life, His righteousness, His obedience. We've been given Him. So what Paul is shouting with his pen is that everything that Jesus is has become our identity. But like the Colossians, we struggle to really believe that. We struggle to see that Jesus really is enough. So Paul keeps making these colossal statements about who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is the head of the church. He's the identity. He is the beginning. He continues. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. The firstborn of the dead. What's that mean? I mean, weren't there a lot of people that were raised to life before Jesus? Right, you got Jairus' daughter, right, and Lazarus, a lot of people that were raised from the dead. How can Jesus be the firstborn from the dead? Well, listen, very simply, what is the curse for sin? Anyone? Death. Very good. Man, sharp. Death. The curse for sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely what? Die. Okay? In, in Romans 6.23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is Death. Sin equals death. What Paul is saying, look at this, this is very awesome. What Paul is saying when he says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, literally firstborn from the dead ones. Look at this. He is saying that Jesus is the first one to defeat the curse of death. Look at that. It's awesome. On the cross, the sin of humanity was placed on Jesus. He became sin. It wasn't his sin. It was our sin. It was the sin of people he created. The punishment for his sin, for our sin on him, was death. Jesus died on the cross that day. He died because the curse that he now was under of our sin, that curse of death. But in his resurrection, he became the firstborn from the dead one. Firstborn from the curse of death. Because of his perfect obedience, fully satisfying the Father, Jesus was raised to life, the firstborn from among the dead ones. And every single one of us who trust in him have also been raised from the dead ones. Isn't that awesome? Who is Jesus? He's the firstborn from the dead ones. So that all who look upon him and trust will also be raised from death unto life. He was the first so that he would have preeminence over all. We are alive in Christ only because Jesus himself is alive. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's awesome. He is the firstborn of the dead ones whom we all, when we came into this world, were. But because he has passed from death unto life, we who believe are now alive with him. And let's wrap up with verse 19. And here we have this three-letter word again. So Paul's going to explain further what that means. For in him, Christ, oh, look at this, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, I know you're getting tired of me saying this, but another colossal statement. In him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Man, again, we've got to let that sink in. I'll take a sip of water so I can sink in a little further. In Him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to do well. Now, we've got to remember the big picture. 
the Colossians were struggling to rest in the reality that Jesus is enough. They, they were struggling to believe that Jesus was everything they needed. They were getting tripped up with religion and philosophies that seemed necessary to improve their standing before God. They were thankful that Jesus got them this far, but then they needed something else to take them further in God. And here Paul drops probably the most colossal of all the colossal statements, that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. So so there's no additional fullness than the fullness of God. There's no greater fulfillment than the full fulfillment that is found in God. I mean, name something, let's be, let's be honest, let's name something that even compares to the fullness that is found in God. Now, if I was asked that, you know, when I was younger, I'd probably list some sort of sin, right? Because of the temporary feeling that that sin gives me, or gave me, and gives me still. When I was younger, I would, I would jump at, for, oh, I know something that's fulfilling that's not found in Jesus, but, but let's go back to what is the curse of that sin. Death. Death. Now, we might not understand that, but the curse of that sin is death. Death is death, right? It's empty, it's void, it's, it's nothing. Jesus is the source and the supplier, the sustainer, the giver, and the provider of life, eternal life. He's the tree of life. He who has the Son has Life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I hear Paul saying that the fullness of God, the fullness of life, everything that you will never have outside of Him because you are dead apart from Him, the fullness of life, the fullness of God, eternal life, this life that will never end, this life that can never be improved, this life that can never disappoint, this life that can never fade, is found where? In Christ. In Christ, the fullness of God, namely life, dwells in Christ. So here's the deal. All right, that's where we're stopping today. Here's the deal. If the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ, and it, and it does, if the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ, why would we not be pleased to enjoy the fullness of God? In life. If the fullness of God dwells in Christ, then why in the world can we drag something else in to increase that? This is Paul's challenge to the Colossians that we're going to see over and over and over through this letter. Is Jesus enough? The very fullness of God dwells in Christ. If you believe in Christ, let me ask you, where do you dwell? Simple question. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. If you believe in Him, where do you dwell? Where do you abide? In Christ. Okay, so we got the fullness of God. That's this hand. Wax on. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, you dwell where? In Christ. See this? Do you see this? The fullness of God dwells in Christ. You, by grace through faith, now dwell in Christ. Here's our journey marker. If you're new, journey marker is like, okay, let's put all this into a a sentence so we can take home. We dwell in and with the very fullness of God. What more is there? I'm going to say that again a little slower. We dwell in and with the very fullness of God. What more is there?
I mean, what more is there? You and I, we dwell in the very fullness of God. I mean, what more is there? Really, think about it. What more is there? Will enticing words from other people, even preachers, will vain philosophies, will religious legalism that's trying to distract the Colossians and us today, will that ever add to the full fulfillment and fullness that we have already in Christ? No. Will you ever be able to add to the already fullness that you have in Christ? Listen, I I, want to be as clear and as precise and as gauged as I can be possible. Please listen. If you don't hear anything else, please listen to this next paragraph. We do not enter Christ and then find out that he's not enough and then drag Moses, the law, the Ten Commandments, or any such religious system of works-based religion into Christ to find greater fulfillment than what we already have in Christ. Somebody say, yes. Somebody say, hallelujah. We do not enter into Christ and find out, oh, this isn't enough, and drag in the old covenant. Paul says that The law, the center of the Old Covenant, is the power of what? Sin. Sin. The curse of sin is what? Death. We have entered into life. We don't come into Christ and then realize, you know what, this isn't enough. Let's pull Moses back into the picture. We don't enter Christ and drag moralism, asceticism, or any such thinking in with us. When we enter Christ by grace through faith, we enter into the fullness of God. I mean, really, let's put that in our pipe and smoke on it for a second. We have the fullness of God already in Christ. That's, let's just be honest. That's hard to believe, though, isn't it? Let's just be honest. Our mind, our thinking is so wrapped up in, in religion and in self-improvement on outside-in. It, it's hard to really rest in that. Let's just be honest. But when we do, when we see that we are in the fullness of God when we're in Christ, listen, it's lights out, man. It's game on. It's awesome. It's joy. There's life. There's freedom. Ephesians 1.3, Paul says the exact same thing. He says that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Name a spiritual blessing that you don't already have in Christ. To list one is to call God a liar. Our band's going to come on up. We're going to close out this morning with some worship songs. If there's one thing that I just wish that we as a church embraced more than anything else, it's this. I I pray daily that, that we would believe with every fiber of our being that Jesus alone is enough. That Jesus alone in enough. In a couple of verses, when we get to chap- verse 27, still here in chapter 1, when we get to verse 27, Paul says that this very same Jesus, listen, who is the image of God, this very same Jesus who is preeminent over all creation, this very same Jesus who created all things by him, through him, and for him, this very same Jesus who is the head of the church, this very same Jesus who is the first one to conquer death, to end the curse of 
death, this very same Jesus, where the fullness of God now dwells, Paul is going to say in verse 27, listen, that this very same Jesus lives in you. He lives in you. This very same one. He is now in you. We'll see in, in chapter 2 how, how Jesus has cut away our old dead heart and, and the sin-stained flesh and He's created a brand new heart, a new creation where He now abides. This Christ who is before all things, this Christ who is creator of all things, this Christ who is sustainer of life is now in you. He's in you. He is joined to your new man. He is now your life. He is yours. And you are His. So here's our question. Who is Jesus? Who is He? Who is He? And is He enough? Yeah. Oh, saints, I hope what we see this. He's enough. He's enough. I mean, where else can we turn to find life? We were born dead. I know I've said that a lot, but it's true. We were born dead. Where else can we turn to find life? We have to turn to the one who was the firstborn from the dead ones. That's where we find life. Where else can we turn to find rescue? Where else can we turn to find joy, to find peace? Where else can we turn to find fulfillment? All of it. It's in Him. It's in Him. We're going to enter a time, I'm going to pray over us, and we're going to enter this time of, of worship of this Jesus. Was He a carpenter? Was, 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 did He walk on this earth? Absolutely. But He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Everything you see and everything you can't see was created by Him. All of it. He's before all things. And He holds it all together. He's the head of you. If you are in Him, He is your identity. He is your source. We are alive because He's alive. If He were to be cut off, if the head were to be cut off, then we would be dead again. As long as Jesus is alive, we are now alive in Him. The fullness of God dwells. We're going to worship Him in music here in a second. So when we stand, if you want to close your eyes and just marinate in the reality of who this Jesus is and not even utter a word, feel free to do that. If you, when we stand up and sing here in a minute, if you feel unable to even keep your hands down because you just want to cry out to your daddy on Father's Day, say, Daddy, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Feel free to do that. If you want to sit there and not even move a muscle because of the awesomeness of this Jesus who's now in you, feel free to do that. Richard and I will be standing up here if you want to come and talk about Jesus, what it means to believe in Him, what it means to trust in Him, what baptism is all about, then we'd love to talk with you. The first song we're going to sing is written by one of our friends who when he was reading Colossians 1, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, it just blew his mind. And so he wrote this song that we're going to sing. So my prayer for us is that we begin or continue to believe that Jesus is enough. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the, the grace of, of your people here listening to a, a guy try his best to show the awesomeness of Christ. But God, I thank you that even that is not de- 
dependent upon my ability to communicate, but that your Spirit is in this room leading us, guiding us in truth. So Father, I pray that we become a church that gets it. A church that that doesn't leave our first love, who is Christ, and move on to other things. That when vain philosophies and enticing words and, and, and religious moralism comes to, 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 to in front of us, that we realize, no, 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 That's, I don't need that. I've got more than I could ever have in Christ alone. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is now mine. I am now His. God, this is the message that our community needs to hear. This is the message that your church needs to proclaim. In Christ, it's life. So Father, I pray that we respond accordingly. In faith, continuing to believe that Jesus is enough. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.